Well, God bless and welcome to Castle Grace. And uh, what we're going to look at today is who may dwell on thy holy hill. Uh, Psalm 15, 1 through 5, we read, Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? Good question, right? He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness and speaketh the truth in his heart. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor do evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he that honoreth them that fear the Lord. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. He that putteth not out his money to ursery, nor taketh reward against the innocent. He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? If a man has not asked this question of the Lord, he is not enlightened enough to have asked the most important question in his life. It was David's question to the Lord, and it should be our question as well. Lord, who shall dwell in thy tabernacle? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? What kind of man then shall be worthy enough to be in thy holy presence? It is heaven, therefore, that those who have wisdom should seek for an answer to this most important question. This is why it is foolish for men to either ask themselves or other men the road to eternal life, simply because without divine revelation, no man can have any proper sense of it at all. Heaven is God's world and His mystical realm, and only a highly ignorant man would be so presumptuous to conclude that he by himself knows anything concerning its entrance. See, it is only the Lord who may enlighten a man's heart as to how heaven can be gained. The Lord revealing quite abundantly in Scripture that his thoughts are not ours, and surely so when it comes to who will be found worthy to dwell on God's holy hill. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, we read, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because God's thoughts are esteemably higher than ours, should it not then teach us that we should reach for them and not be so arrogant to presume that we know anything of either God or the world Jesus has called us into without divine instruction. God's word warning us that whatever we think we know about anything is far short of what we really ought to know. And this knowledge must include entrance into God's heavenly kingdom. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2, we read, And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. This is Matthew Henry's commentary on this. There is no proof of ignorance more common than conceit of knowledge. Much may be known when nothing is known to good purpose. And those who think they know anything to grow vain thereon are the least likely to make good use of their knowledge. Satan hurts some as much by tempting them to be proud of mental powers 
as others by alluring to sensuality. Knowledge which puffs up the possessor and renders him confident is as dangerous as self-righteous pride. Though what he knows may be right, without holy affection, all human knowledge is worthless." End quote. Man's pride so prone to swell that it takes very little of a knowledge of God for him to miscalculate that he knows everything of God. Proverbs 18.2, A fool hath no delight in understanding, but that his heart may discover itself. The course of the fool then is very dangerous, for he will not ask the Lord as David did, so wisely in this psalm the way to heaven. And who will be deemed worthy enough by God to be allowed entrance into it? Thus by thinking he knows the answer himself, he will not inquire of God to check if he is right. It has then been said and corroborated many times in this life that fools die for want of wisdom. In Proverbs 10, 21 we read, The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want or lack of wisdom. Barnes on this verse. For want of wisdom, some prefer through him who wanteth understanding referreth to a person. The wise guides others to safety. The fool, empty-headed and empty-hearted, involves others like himself in destruction." End quote. A humble man will realize that whatever he thinks he knows of God or the world above is not enough unless God teaches him and this must go on his entire physical life. So also, however much we may feel we know of the path to heaven, there is so much more that both God's Word and God's Spirit can teach us. For there are many men who think that heaven will be theirs, who if they had more of a knowledge of God and God's Word, would realize they fall sizably short. He that walketh uprightly and worketh righteousness, the path to God's holy hill will be evidenced, first by those who walk uprightly and manifest works of righteousness. This is from the Treasury of David. The Lord, in answer to the question, informs us by His Holy Spirit of the character of the man who alone can dwell in His holy hill. In perfection this holiness is found only in the man of sorrows. But in a measure it is wrought in all His people by the Holy Ghost. Faith and the graces of the Spirit are not mentioned, because this is a description of outward character, and where fruits are found, the root may not be seen. But it is surely there. Observe the accepted man's walk, work, and word. He that walketh uprightly, he keeps himself erect as those who do traverse high ropes. If they lean on one side over, they must go, or as those who carry precious but fragile wear in baskets on their heads, who lose all if they lose their perpendicular. True believers do not cringe as flatters, wriggle as serpents, bend double as earth grubbers, or crook on one side as those who have sinister aims. They have the strong backbone of the vital principle of grace within, and being themselves upright, they are able to walk uprightly. Walking is of far more importance than talking. He only is right who is upright in walk and downright in honesty, and worketh righteousness. His faith shows itself by good works, 
and therefore is no dead faith, end quote. It is a man's walk that will reveal his true character. No man can walk crookedly and think that he has within himself the righteousness of Christ. True Christians are, therefore, very upright and ethical, who will not stoop to behaviors that are less than virtuous. In the four seeds of Jesus' parable of the sower and the seed, the only seed to bring forth good fruit was that seed that fell on an honest and good heart. And in Luke 8, 15, we read, But that on the good ground are they, which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it, and bring forth fruit with patience. Thus a dishonest and crafty man, who has little to no love for honesty and goodness, should not think that eternal life will be his. Fools in their hearts thinking that how they live will have no bearing on if they are saved. Yet a man's character is directly linked to a good and Holy Spirit-filled life. And if a man has not these qualities in himself, he should not think that he is fit for heaven. As a righteous and upright walk, ultimately, will be the external proof that a man loves righteousness. Likewise, none who do not walk righteously on the outside should we confuse with having any true righteousness on the inside. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 7, we read, Little children, let no man deceive you, and they surely will try. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. And in 1 John 3.10, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. God's true children and those who will dwell on his holy hill will be made manifest by doing righteousness and loving their brother. For he who does not walk uprightly and does not walk in love is not a son of God and has not a home in heaven prepared for him. To walk rightly and love deeply is the sign that a man has been saved by God. So that anywhere these two qualities are lacking, it is nothing more than a pretentious pagan playing the role of a good Christian. Because how we walk in truth reveals who we really are. And only a hypocrite will contend that their actions are not a true indication of their heart. The lesson then to be learned is that people will tell you who they are by their own behavior and you would be wise to believe them. For where their lips may deceive, their walk will reveal the truth. It is thus a righteous walk that reveals a righteous person. God's children, therefore, will be known by whether they do righteousness or not. Not then whether they hear the word, but if they do the word. In James chapter 1, verse 25, you read, But whosoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he be not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man will be blessed in his deed. A heavenly bound man will manifest righteous behavior, even as sinners will by their actions reveal their true nature. A man's walk and not his mouth, therefore, will reveal who he truly is. What he does and not what he says will reveal if faith in Christ really does exist. Thus, fruit and not profession will tell us who are ultimately Christ's and who are not. 
And in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16, we read, You shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. It is therefore not enough for a man to say that heaven is his, as his walk must prove it. A man bound for heaven will exhibit a much higher integrity than one content with this earth. How a man walks also reveals the safety of his steps. In Proverbs 28, 18, we read, Whoso walketh uprightly shall be saved, but he that is perverse in his ways shall fall at once. How blind then are those whose walk is lacking, but still think themselves as to have already arrived spiritually. It is thus not the speech of a man, but his steps, his work, his fruit, which shows his true character. See, faith, because it originates in the heart, can cause some to think that since it cannot be seen, that it therefore can be faked. As many a hypocrite has proclaimed that he possesses faith, that's a great stress on possessing there, uh, while presuming because it lies within. None can really challenge his position. So also none shall truly believe in the Son of God and not also continue in the good works of the Son. In Acts 10, 38, we read, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, and this same Jesus went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. In James 2, 14, we read, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? Here is the question, and a good one at that. The question is, can a man really have faith and possess no walk of integrity and works of righteousness following him? The answer is, of course not. Those are wrong who put a mere notional belief of the gospel for the whole of evangelical religion, as many now do. No doubt true faith alone whereby men have part in Christ's righteousness, atonement and grace, saves their souls. But it produces holy fruits and is shown to be real by its effects on their works, while mere assent to any form of doctrine or mere historical belief of any facts wholly differs from this saving faith. A bare profession may gain the good opinion of pious people, and it may procure, in some cases, worldly good things. But what profit will it be for any to gain the whole world and to lose their souls? Can this faith save him? All things should be accounted profitable or unprofitable to us as they tend to forward or hinder the salvation of our souls. This place of Scripture plainly shows that an opinion or assent to the gospel without works is not faith. There is no way to show we really believe in Christ but by being diligent in good works from gospel motives and for gospel purposes. Men may boast to others and be conceited of that which they really have not. There is not only to be an assent in faith, but consent. Not only an assent to the truth of the word, but a consent to take Christ. True believing is not an act of the understanding only but a work of the whole heart. That a justifying faith cannot be without works is shown from two examples, Abraham and Rahab. 
Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned unto him for righteousness. Faith, producing such works, advanced him to peculiar favors. We see then, in verse 24, how that by works a man is justified, not by a bare opinion or profession, or believing without obeying, but by having such faith as produces good works. And to have to deny his own reason, affections, and interests is an action fit to try a believer. Observe here the wonderful power of faith in changing sinners. Rahab's conduct proved her faith to be living or having power. It showed that she believed with her heart, not merely by an assent of understanding. Let us then take heed for the best works without faith are dead. They want root and principle. End quote. In James 2.15, we read, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and now verse 16, And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Speech alone and by itself means nothing. If there is not a consistent action that follows... Thus, none should think that a mere profession of faith is enough for heaven. It is not. How then we have chosen to live in this world will greatly affect our entrance into the next. And now James 2.17. Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. We can easily see that those who will dwell with God in heaven will manifest far more in their life than merely conversation. As faith without works, God's word plainly states is dead, and the result of dead faith is that a man shall not dwell on God's holy hill. Hence, the truth is that if there are not living, holy, and godly works following a man's life, it is only dead faith that inhabits his soul. So also, dead faith cannot save a man simply because it is not even what God considers faith to be at all. This is from the Treasury of David, William Secker. There is no asserting the quality of a tree, but by its fruits. When the wheels of a clock move within, the hand on the dial will move without. When the heart of a man is sound in conversation, then the life will be fair in profession. When the conduit is walled in, how shall we judge of the spring, but by the waters which run through the pipes? End quote. Worketh righteousness. This is from the treasury of David in Psalm 15 too. <clears throat> Thomas Boston. And worketh righteousness. A man must first be righteous before he can work righteousness of life. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous, 1 John 3, 7. The tree makes the fruit, not the fruit the tree. And therefore the tree must be good before the fruit can be good. Matthew 7, 18, a righteous man may make a righteous work, but no work of an unrighteous man can make him righteous. Now we become righteous only by faith through the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, Romans 5, 1. Wherefore, let men work as they will. If they be not true believers in Christ, they are not workers of righteousness. And consequently, they will not be dwellers in heaven. You must then closed with Christ in the first place, and by faith received the gift of imputed righteousness, 
or you will never truly bear this character of a citizen of Zion. A man shall as soon force fruit out of a branch broken off from the tree and withered as work righteousness without believing in and uniting with Christ, end quote. Jesus also taught that a man could bear no fruit except the man abided in himself. In John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Thus for a man to truly walk in righteousness, he must first have righteousness by being united to the Son of Righteousness. This is also why it will prove so difficult for a man who has no connection to the Son of God to maintain a righteous and genuine walk with God. As hypocrites, because they are wanting or lacking on the inside, have a hard time carrying out the righteous works of religion on the outside. Their souls growing weary of doing good, simply because no true good dwells in them. Vacant in any true love for God, following and doing good in God's name will be a hard thing for pretenders in the faith to continue to do. Thus, in a few months or a few short years, those who have made only a show of religion will return to the world which they always love most deeply. Judas did this, so did Demas. Hence, to walk and live rightly for hypocrites is a most difficult and arduous path. Having no sincere connection to the Son of God, they lack the heart and spiritual desire to continue in righteousness. Whereas, because Christ's true people have been redeemed from sins, they have been freed so that they can walk in good works. In Titus 2.14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Ellicott on this verse. Zealous of good works. The man who hopes to see the epiphany of Jesus his Lord and love and glory will struggle zealously with hand and brain to live his life in such a manner that he may meet his Lord when he comes in glory with joy. It was a people composed of such zealots of goodness, of men longing for his sake, to do their utmost for his cause that our great God and Savior wished to purify himself, end quote. So also all those who have been created by God in Christ have been purposed in their creation to carry on the goodness of Christ in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Boldly assert that good works will not accompany the saved are void of salvation themselves. False teachers, who themselves, because they have no desire to do the will of God, will lie, insinuating that how you live makes no difference to God. In Matthew 23, 13, we read, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Ultimately, then, pretenders in the faith will be given leaders as corrupt of themselves, men who will lie, telling others that neither integrity nor works are critical for salvation. When, in fact, 
They are the only real fruits of genuine faith in God. For none can believe on the Son of God and not continue Christ's ministry by greatly desiring to do both good for God and man. 2 Timothy 4.3 For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Ellicott on this. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Timothy must bear in mind that things in the church of Christ on earth will not change for the better. The great dragnet of the church in its wide sweep would keep drawing in meshes something of every kind. Errors now just apparent, he must remember, would attain more formable dimensions. The thirst for novelties and doctrine, the desire for teaching which while offering peace to a troubled conscience, would yet allow the old self-indulgent life to go on as before, would increase. In full view of this development of error, ensure expectation of a future full of anxious care, Timothy and his brother teachers must indeed be wakeful, watchful, and earnest in their preaching and ministrations, and the thought that more and more ever, more of the so-called Christians would dislike the preaching of sound doctrine, as taught by the apostle. The very knowledge of this growing unpopularity must serve as an incentive to greater labor, more interest, and more loving activity on the part of Timothy and his companions. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers. Their own lusts. This expression gives us some insight into the reason which led to this future apostasy of so many. Concerning which St. Paul warned Timothy, their own lusts, which at all risks they would gratify, would serve to alienate them from that severe and strictly moral school of apostolic teaching in which the sternest morality was bound up with purity of doctrine, to which school St. Paul's pupils men, like Timothy and the presbyters of Ephesus, belonged. These worldly ones to whom St. Paul referred, reluctant to part with the hope of Christianity taught, and unwilling to live the life which St. Paul and Timothy insisted upon, as necessary to be lived by all those who would share in that glorious hope sought out for themselves more indulgent teachers who would flatter and gratify their hearers with novelties in doctrine and would at the same time lay comparatively little stress on the pure and saintly life, end quote. If any then will dispute that walking uprightly and righteously before God is not needed for heaven, then we should know what company they are of. And speaketh the truth in his heart. Benson on this. Psalm 15, 2. And speaketh the truth in his heart, his words and his professions to God and men agree with and proceed from the thoughts and purposes of his heart, end quote. Barnes on this verse, Psalm 15, 2. And speaketh the truth in his heart, he uses language that is sincere and that is in accordance with his real belief. This is opposed to all mere outward professions and all hypocritical pretenses. His religion has its seat in the heart and not the religion of forms. His acts are the expressions of upright intentions and purposes and are not performed for selfish and hypocritical ends. This is everywhere the nature of true religion." End quote. It is necessary for a man to be true to himself 
and also then to gain God's favor that his heart and his tongue match. For none can deceive with either the mouth or actions and not think that God finds them lacking. As all deception has its seeds in the devil's behavior, thus he who does not speak the truth will seek to deceive. This is why heaven will be only for those who love the truth and because of it, embrace that it must abide in their heart as well as their speech. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them they, that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. Those, therefore, whom God's word says will perish are those who did not love the truth. Mere assenting to the truth is therefore not sufficient, as only the man who loves it will shape his life around it. Thus those who shall dwell on God's holy hill are not only upright and righteous in their walk, but they also speak the truth in their hearts and cannot and will not feign what is not sincere in them. Treasury of David on this verse again, Psalm 15:2. We must speak as we think, and our tongues must be faithful interpreters of our mind. Otherwise we lie, not speaking as we think. Thomas Boston, end quote. And again, Treasury of David. The tongue follows the inward inclination. I would resolve to do nothing that may need a lie. If Gehazi's covetousness had not shamed him, he had not wanted a lie to excuse him. He that walks uprightly walks surely and safely in this, as well as other respects. Proverbs 10.9 May I do nothing that is dishonorable and mean, nothing that cannot bear the light, and then I shall have little temptation to lying. I would endeavor for a lively sense of the eye of God upon me, acting and speaking in this presence. Lord, I desire to set thee always before me. Thou understandeth my thoughts as perfectly as others do my words. I would consider before I speak and not speak much or rashly. Proverbs 29, 20. I would often think of the severity of a future judgment when every secret shall be made manifest and the hypocrite and liar exposed before angels and men. Benjamin Bennett, Christian Oratory. None should think that deception with either heart or mouth is acceptable to God and worthy of heaven. For only those who choose to sin will have need of a tongue trying to cover up for it. No man, therefore, can be a righteous man and worthy of heaven that lives a life of deceit. And there will always be an attempt at deceit when the heart of a man and his tongue do not match. Psalm 36.2 the words of his mouth are iniquity and deceit. He hath left off to be wise and to do good. So also Romans 3.13, Their throat is an open sepulcher, and with their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Now verse 3 of Psalm 15.2, He that backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbor, nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. Here we see the righteous character of those bound for heaven, and what they will not do. Thus those who abide on God's holy hill will be those who do not backbite and will not do evil to their neighbor. Hence, then even as righteous works must be done in order to dwell with God, 
so also cannot evil be done, and it still be thought that men will live on God's holy hill. The treasury of David on this verse, verse 3. He that backbiteth not with his tongue, the Hebrew word signifieth to play the spy, and by a metaphor, to backbite or slander. For backbiters and whispers, after the manner of spies, go up and down dissembling their malice, that they may espy the faults and effects of others, whereof they may make a malicious relation to such as will give ear to their slanders. So that backbiting is a malicious defamation of a man behind his back. And that the citizens of heaven doth and ought to abhor from backbiting. The horrible wickedness of this sin doth evidence. For first Leviticus 19.16, where it is straightly forbidden, the talebearer is compared to a peddler. Thou shalt not walk about with tales and slanders, as it were a peddler among thy people. For as the peddler, having brought his wares of someone or more, goeth about from house to house, that he may sell the same to others. So backbiters and talebearers, gathering together tales and rumors, as if they were wares, go from one to another, that such wares as either themselves have invented or have gathered by report. They may utter in the absence of their neighbor to his infamy and disgrace. Likewise, Psalm 50:20, Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. Slander is condemned as a notable crime, which God will not suffer to go unpunished. Ezekiel 22, 9, It is reckoned among the abominations of Jerusalem, for which Jerusalem is denounced against it. And Romans 1, 29 and 30, Among the crimes of the heathen, given over unto a reprobate sense, this is placed, they were whispers and backbiters, George Downham. Uh, the treasury of David now in Psalm, on Psalm 15.3 again. Nor taketh up a reproach against his neighbor. The saints of God must not be too light of hearing, much less of believing all tales, rumors, and reports of their brethren. And charity requireth that we do not only stop and stay them, but that we examine them before we believe them. Saul the king, too light of belief in this point, believed the slanderous and false reports of David's enemies, who put into Saul's head that David imagined evil against him. Yea, David himself showed his great infirmity in that, that without due examination and proof of the matter, he believed the false report of Ziba against Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, of whom to David the king persecuted by Absalom his son. Ziba reported falsely that he should say, This day shall the house of Israel restore unto me the kingdom of my father. The example of whose infirmity in Scripture reproved, must not we follow, but let us rather embrace the truth of that heavenly doctrine which, through God's Spirit, here he preacheth, that we believe not false reports against our neighbors. Richard Turnbull, end quote. Any also who are quick to believe murmurs and whispers are the same who will doggedly be slow and resistant to hear the truth. For no good man takes pleasure in any evil of his neighbor, and especially so when it contains little to no truth in it. Every slander thus designs to do evil to his neighbor. Barnes on Psalm 15:3. There are large classes of persons to whom nothing is more acceptable 
than reproachable accusations of others and who embrace no reports more readily than they do those which impute bad conduct or bad motives to them, end quote. Heaven thus will not be for those of this class who love to hear men smeared but stop their own ears to the truth. No man then can have both a love for gossip and slander and also a love for the truth of God's word. They are incompatible. As he who loves to both hear and spread lies about others is far removed from having sufficient integrity to enter heaven. So that where love covers a multitude of sins and above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Those who have no love will seek to disperse gossip as much as they can. In whose isles a vile person is condemned, we're still in Psalm 15, now verse 4, there will not be a middle ground created for those who love righteousness when they come in contact with vile men. For if a man loves truth, he cannot tolerate evil and will condemn all unrighteousness. Treasury of David on this verse. In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. When wicked Jerome, king of Israel, came to Elias the prophet to ask counsel of the Lord and to entreat for the waters, having in company with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, being virtuous, the prophet showeth his contempt to this one, being wicked, and his reverence to the other, being godly, faithful, and virtuous, and said, As the Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would not look toward thee, nor see thee, 2 Kings 3.14. Thus was the wicked vile in his sight, thus did he not flatter the ungodly. In like matter, godly Mordecai, the Jew, having Haman, ambitious and proud, Agagite in contempt, would in no wise bow the knee unto him in a sign of honor as the rest of the people did, for which cause he was extremely hated, menaced, and molested of proud and wicked Haman. To wink at their wickedness, to uphold them in their iniquity, to fawn upon them and flatter them, to praise them when they deserve just reproof is, as it were, an honoring of them, to which, as to most grievous sin, the prophet denounces a most bitter curse. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, Isaiah 5.20, See, wicked men will often look for friendship with good men, as it is a clever way to hide their own ways and lift them up in others' eyes. Good men, though, should shun such associations, as those who are holy should not be a partaker of other men's sin. And any time we endorse a sinner, we endorse the manner in which he sins against God. Hence, no man can be truly good and not condemn the evil around him. There is also no righteousness in either loving or putting up with unrighteousness. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil and not be a partaker with it by allowing it to go unnoticed and unaddressed. And in Romans 16, verse 17, we read, Now I beseech you, brethren, Mark them, which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches 
deceive the hearts of the simple. A poorly principled person thus can be swayed by good words and fair speeches because it takes little to deceive those who live by few godly principles themselves. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, even if we do sympathize with the captive souls caught up in it. In Proverbs 18, 13, we read, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride, and arrogancy, and the evil way, and the froward mouth do I hate. You also can be sure that he who does not really hate evil does also not really love the truth. Verse 4 of the Treasury of David, In whose eyes a vile person is condemned. Augustine, as Basidianias writeth, showeth what hatred he had to tale-bearers and false reporters of others. Had two verses written over his table by translation here. He that doth love with bitter speech the absent to defame must surely know that at this board no place is for the same. He honoreth them that fear the Lord. Again in uh, verse 4 of Psalm 15. It is impossible to truly honor the Lord and not honor those who fear Him. Any true reverence, therefore, for our God will and must equally be transferred to honor those who in sincerity follow Him as all true fear of God will always be carried to honor those who, like us, reverence His holy name. In 1 John 4, 20 we read, If a man say, I love God, and hate his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? None thus can truly love God whom they cannot see if they do not love and cherish God's true sons whom they can see. It is therefore love and reverence for the people of God that shows if a man is really of God himself. For though hypocrites may play a role in being religious, they have no real honor for the godly nor love for the Christian brethren. Their loyalty to the children of God will thus dissipate just as quickly as words do in the air. This is why those who dwell with God on God's holy hill will honor all who truly fear the Lord and love the children of God. Hence, not only must a vile person be despised, but a God-fearing man must be praised and held in high honor, if it is heaven we wish to enter into. A righteous man thus will as equally condemn the vile person as he will exalt those who are sincere in their faith. Verse 4 still, He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not. Barnes on this verse. He that sweareth to his own hurt and changeth not, who has made a promise or entered into a contract that is likely to turn out contrary to his expectations, to his own disadvantage, but who still adheres to this engagement. If the thing itself is wrong, if he has made a promise or pledged himself to do a wicked thing, he cannot be under obligation to execute it. He should at once abandon it. But... He is not at liberty to violate an agreement simply because it will be a loss to him or because he ascertains that it will not be as he supposed to his advantage. The principles here laid down will extend to all contracts or agreements, pecuniary or otherwise, and should be a general principle regulating all our transactions with our fellow men." End quote. In short, a man who will dwell on Zion's hill will be a man of his word who shall keep it even if it does him hurt, 
A good man's integrity is therefore such that it is better for him to be pained and himself suffer loss than try and pass it on to his neighbor. Truce breakers are not therefore heaven bound. In Numbers 32 we read, If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, or swear an oath to bind his soul with a bond, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeded out of his mouth. So also Deuteronomy 23, 21. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it, and it would be sin in thee. It is true of a righteous man that even if he crosses and makes an agreement in his heart, it is the same as if he uttered it with his tongue or signed his name to an agreement on a paper. So that even though others cannot see what his heart has decided, God does. Therefore he must do as he has purposed. Man's integrity thus must go deep into his soul, whereby if commitments are made, then they must be kept. He that putteth not out his money to ursery. How we treat the poor will very much affect if we ourselves will be worthy of heaven. Thus where those who are themselves covetous will take advantage of the poor, a righteous man cannot. Another's plight, therefore, should never be used for our own advancement. Thus, in the church, it is a wrong thing for interest on loans, ever to be required of those we deem as part of God's family. Barnes on Psalm 15, 5. The reference is to the law of the Hebrews, which forbade such a loaning of money to the poor, and especially to the poor Israelites, Exodus 22, 25, and Leviticus 25, 35 through 37. Although this was forbidden in respect to the Israelites, yet the lending of money on interest or ursary in a lawful sense was allowed toward strangers or toward the people of other nations. See Deuteronomy 23, 19, and 20. The ground of the distinction was that the Hebrews were regarded as a nation of brethren, that as such they should be willing to accommodate and aid each other, that they should not do anything that could be regarded as unbrotherly. In respect to other people, it was allowed, not because it was proper to take advantage of their wants and to oppress them, but because this special reason did not exist in regard to them. That might be improper. In a family, among brothers and sisters, which would be entirely proper toward those who did not sustain the special relation. And we may conceive of cases. Such cases, in fact, often occur when it would be unkind in the highest degree to exact interest of a brother or an intimate friend while it is perfectly proper to receive the ordinary allowance for the use of money in our business transactions, that is, the ordinary rate of interest of those who do not sustain to us the special relation. The fact that it was allowed to the Hebrews to take interest of the people of other nations shows that there was nothing morally wrong in the thing itself. And, in fact, there can be no reason why a man to whom it is an accommodation, should not pay for the use of money as well as for the use of any other property. The thing forbidden here, therefore, is not the taking of interest in any case, but taking of interest in such a way as would be oppressive and hard, as of a Hebrew demanding it from his poor and needy brother." End quote. Nor taketh reward against the innocent. Any, therefore, who can be moved by money to either make or change any decision will have slim chance of ever seeing heaven.
For if money can affect any decision in our life, and especially so in the affairs of others, then it is not in any true godly integrity that we walk in. The sin of bribery, which entails being influenced for the sake of money, is expressly forbidden in Scripture. In Isaiah 5.23 we read, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. So also, Deuteronomy 16, 19, Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. And again, Ecclesiastes 7, 7, Thou shalt not rest judgment, thou shalt not respect persons, neither take a gift, for a gift doth blind the eyes of the wise and pervert the words of the righteous. Since those who take bribes are open to their hearts being corrupted, God is to greed that they shall have no place in heaven. Hence, if a man is willing to be altered in any way by money or a bribe, it shows that it is not true character he seeks, but only his own worldly gain. Verse 5 still here, He that doeth these things shall never be moved. Barnes on this, he that doeth these things shall never be moved. That is, in answer to the question, in Psalm 15:1, he shall be permitted to abide in the tabernacle of God and to dwell in his holy hill. He shall have a solid foundation of hope. He is a friend of God and shall enjoy his favor forever. In other words, these things constitute true religion. And who has such a character will obtain eternal life, end quote. As has been seen in this study of Psalm 15, if a man has character flaws, they are far more dangerous to his salvation than he ever imagined. A man's character, therefore, should never be so diminished that it is believed that it will not affect entrance into heaven without both repentance and change. For only as men do the right things and abstain from the wrong will it reveal if their religion is pure. How a man then lives his life will greatly affect if he is allowed to live with God on God's holy hill, even though those ignorant of God's word may insist otherwise. And we'll close with Matthew uh, 7, 7. Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Amen. God bless.